Ezekiel chapter 33, starting from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet, and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die." Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just, when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning, so my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land, but we are many. The land is surely given us to possess. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, 
You eat flesh with the blood and lift up your eyes to your idols and shed blood. Shall you then possess the land? You rely on the sword. You commit abominations and each one of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? Say this to them. Thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword and whoever is in the open field I will give to the beast to be devoured. And those who are in strongholds and in caves shall die by pestilence. And it will make the land a desolation and a waste. And her proud might shall come to an end. And the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations that they have committed. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For their lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Good morning, everyone. I guess not such a good morning then. <laughs> you guys look more dead than I feel. Um, but yeah, I feel a bit tired today, so I appreciate your prayers. If you could say a quick one under your breath um, um, so that I can get through, um, yeah, being able to preach God's word over the next 35, 40 minutes or so. Um, shout out to those who are watching in from downstairs as well. We've got an overflow. There's about 15 people downstairs, I think. So hello to those downstairs and hello to those watching in uh, on the live stream. Uh, it's good to have the kids up. We're in holidays, so um, kids are with us. Uh, there were heaps in the first service, a few here. Um, but our teens are missing because they're at a uh, camp at the moment uh, in Tambourine Mountain. Uh, I believe that Darius has finished his last sermon. He preached his first two sermons this weekend uh, to a pretty tough crowd, I heard. On Friday night, they were all pretty tired uh, after a long day of school and a long drive up. And um, so Darius uh, had a pretty tough gig for the first time he ever preached. But I think it went well, and that the, the kids are enjoying themselves, sitting under God's word, uh, and spending time in fellowship up in the mountain. Um, we are going to be continuing on our series in Ezekiel. It's been a long time. It feels like a long time. I think it has been. It's been over two months since we began this series. Um, we've got about three more to go after today, uh, but things will certainly take a turn uh, after this sermon. I think this, this chapter is a turning point before we hit the second half of the book. So please keep your Bibles open to Ezekiel chapter 33. We'll be working through this chapter this morning. Uh, and if it helps for you to follow along, um, there is an outline of the sermon uh, that you would have gotten if you took a bulletin on the way in. If you didn't and you would like one, maybe you can wave your hands around and one of our host team will get it for you. So can I, is there any more bulletins left? There's a few people who need bulletins. Uh, otherwise, you can always download it from the church website or the uh, church WhatsApp page uh, in the lead up to Sunday. I think usually available on Friday evening. Uh, so uh, both will be coming in. And it smells like lunch is being cooked. That's a bit distracting, isn't it? <laughs> we might close that door. <laughs> I, I'm hungry. All right, let's be hungry for God's word uh, <laughs> uh, rather than hungry for physical food. Um, and um, let's come to God in prayer, asking that his spirit will be at work through his word to speak to us. Uh, through this passage, let's pray. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you're a God who speaks and reveals yourself to us. We thank you that uh, you've been doing this through um, the book of Ezekiel, even though it's been hard going as we've been sitting uh, under weeks and weeks uh, of uh, words of judgment uh, to Israel and the nations. Uh, we give you thanks that even uh, in these um, old words, um, that they, they present to us uh, real truths for us to know you and to respond to you in faith and repentance. We pray that today will be no different, uh, that uh, we would continue to have open ears that will hear your word, but more importantly, that we will respond to it uh, in faith and repentance, in real trust and action. Uh, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I forgot my clicker. Sorry, I can just... Cheers. All right. Now, in case you didn't know, um, our sermon series uh, title has been um, that we might know the Lord in judgment and hope. Uh, so this is the, the point, I think, of the whole book of Ezekiel, all 48 chapters, uh, really has this point, right? To know the Lord God in judgment and in hope. And up to this point in the sermon series, up to chapter 33, we've basically looked at the singular point of judgment. From chapter 1 to 33, it's really been about judgment. And chapter 33 kind of caps off this entire first section. And right at the center of this final chapter on judgment is the fall of Jerusalem. Right? Jerusalem being the city of God, um, uh, the, the capital of Israel, of Judah. Now, on either side of the fall of uh, Jerusalem, in the middle of this chapter, we see Ezekiel performing his duty as a watchman of God's people. Right, in the first half of the chapter, Ezekiel speaks uh, to the house of Israel who are in Babylon. So if you don't remember, uh, the, the, the people of Israel were exiled to Babylon when Babylon came um, um, some, about 12 years before this, um, this was written. Uh, and the first half of the chapter is written to them. Right? Uh, and they are in exile, they are in the judgment of God, uh, and they are about to hear the news of Jerusalem's fall. The second half of the chapter, from 23, verse 23 onwards, uh, the audience is the remnant still in the land of uh, Israel. But uh, the promised land at this point is, a, is quite the wasteland. And they hear these words of the prophet after Jerusalem has fallen, and we wonder how will they respond to their capital city, the city of God, being destroyed. Now, what the chapter, I think, is doing in the book of uh, Ezekiel is to draw an end to the judgment half of the book. And it prepares us, it prepares Israel, the original readers, it prepares us, the modern readers, uh, for the chapters that will flow, that will come, the, the chapters on hope that will dominate chapter 30, 34 onwards. Now, the question then is, how should this chapter prepare us right, for the message of hope? And I think how it prepares us for the message of hope is by reminding us for the last time, right, in two very clear pictures, uh, the tragedy of sin, right, showing us two big pictures of the tragedy of sin. It's trying to show us that, that sinful unrepentance is senseless, right, it just, it's crazy to keep being unrepentant towards God. We also see in this chapter with the fall of Jerusalem that the tragedy of sin is the loss of God, right, the tragic loss of God to be connected to God, to be God's people in God's place, and to lose that, uh, there's nothing more tragic than that. Right? Tragedy of sin and the tragedy of the loss of God is what we'll see in this chapter. Now, the final chapter of the judgment half of the book kicks off with a reminder of the role that Ezekiel has. 
if you look at uh, the first nine verses of Ezekiel 33, and you compare the description of the watchman back to chapter 3, when Ezekiel first began his ministry, five years into exile, he was called to this role to be a watchman, right? To be like a sentry uh, to the people of God. And you've got to remember that Jerusalem is like a, a fortified city. And in any fortified city, if you think, you know, um, Lord of the Rings, uh, there will be sentries who will watch out for the, the enemy that's approaching. And they will warn, right? They'll blow the trumpet as a warning for the city to get ready, right? For the, for the enemy that's coming, to take shelter, to, to find safety. And we're told that Ezekiel had this role, right? He was the, the spiritual watchman, a warning of God's impending judgment. Now, initially, it might have been the actual Babylonians, you know, riding in. But now, in exile, it's his role is to keep reminding them uh, of the spiritual uh, judgment that is coming from God. We've seen from chapter 3 onwards that for seven long years, from the fifth year of exile to here, the twelfth year of exile, in the previous 32 chapters, uh, Ezekiel has been faithfully discharging his duty as a sentry, as a watchman. He's only been speaking the words of judgment that God has given him to speak, Otherwise, he's been mute, as you've heard the last few weeks. Ezekiel hasn't been able to say anything of his own except what God gives him to say. And we've heard, sadly, that for seven long years, there has been no response from Israel whatsoever. There's been no contriteness of heart. There's been no repentance. There's been no falling down before God, acknowledging sin, no calling out for forgiveness or for mercy. Now, right at the cusp of Jerusalem's fall, in the middle of this chapter... Ezekiel is commissioned one last time, right, to perform his duty as a watchman for Israel. Now, as readers, as we get to this point in the story, we're not expecting too much, are we? Right? After all, the, the track record for Israel in exile has just been terrible. Uh, add to that, did you notice during the reading how the people of Israel, how the house of Israel this is described? Right in verse 2, uh, the Lord says to Ezekiel, speak to your people. And then in verse 12, say to your people. And then again in verse 17 and in verse 30. Right? If you were to do a quick Google search right, of, uh, say, Bible Gateway, which is where the Bible you can find, and you do a search, uh, your people in the book of Ezekiel, you'll find the biggest concentration of it here. For prior to this chapter, God had still referred to Israel in exile as my people. Right? My people. My people. But now it's your people. There's a distancing Right, as we come to the end of the judgment, there is a distancing between God and the people. Right, things are getting bad. Maybe the end has come. Which is really, really sad, isn't it? Because Israel was once God's people, chosen out of the face of the entire world, out of the entire earth, to be God's treasured possession, a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a cherished people. They were given the promised land. God chose to dwell in their midst in the temple. Right, they were the greatest, uh, most privileged people on the face of the earth. But now, they are no more God's people. Ezekiel, they're your people. Right? They're your people. So to this people, Ezekiel is sent one more time as a watchman to give one final warning. Right? One more chance uh, at the end of a long, long line of chances to see whether they would respond. Crazily, God is still giving these people who are no longer His people a chance. Now, we hear the people's response in verse 10, right? We'll pick it up in verse 10. And it's surprisingly hopeful, isn't it? Have a look at verse 10. Thus have you said, right, Israel, the house of Israel in exile, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us. And we rot away because of them. How then can we live? 
You hear this, right? Israel, there's, a, there's an acknowledgement that they've sinned, they've transgressed. They recognize that sin uh, has made their lives miserable, right? We, we, we run away because of our sin. They, they cry out in anguish and desperation, right? How then can we live? They, they call out. And we wonder as we read these words, are we finally hearing them repent, right? Or is this simply just some cry of pain and anguish? Right, will this finally be the teachable moment where things will turn around for Israel? Will this be the crossroads where they stop choosing unrepentance, stubborn, sinful unrepentance, or will they start turning to God in repentance? It sounds hopeful. And to this call, to this cry, God responds in verse 11. Right? Through the prophet, he tells the people, verse 11, say to them, say to them, as I live, and God lives forever, right? He's a vow, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Like this, this, this word from God should have hit the people right in the fields, right, right into their very heart. It shows the very heart of God. At his very heart, he is pro-life. He is not anti, he is not pro-death. He doesn't, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. As a just God, he will punish and he will judge. But this gives God no pleasure. Can we hear that clearly? It gives him no pleasure to do so. Instead, what gives God great pleasure, what God most wants from his heart, is to see the wicked turn and have life from God. From this heart of God, God calls out to Israel with a heart-rending cry, right? Why? Sorry, turn back, he tells Israel. Turn back from your evil ways. Turn to me. Right? Turn to me. Why will you die? I offer you life. Why will you not take it? Why choose to die? Now, the prophet then, then flashes this out, right, in verse 13 to 16, to explain this idea of God's justice and God's mercy. Like, God's justice means that the transgressor, the wicked, the one who sins, the unrighteous, they will be judged, right? They will die. And he explains is whether, whether they've, you know, in the past they've been righteous, but then at the end they end up being sinners and, and transgressors, or whether they've been wicked all the way through. God's justice means that if you sin, if you transgress, if you turn away from him, you will be judged. God's justice will always stand. However, God says, because of his great mercy and love, a desire to show mercy and give life, if a wicked person, if a sinner turns away from their wicked way and turns to God, then they will surely live. Right? As long as they turn towards God, they will surely live. Now, did you know, I mean, I hope you know, that God has always provided a way for sin to be forgiven. Even in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament law, we may think it's full of instructions about this, do this and don't do that. But in the, the heart of the law is the, atone, the, 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 the offer, the, the gift of the system of atonement. Right, we did Leviticus a couple of years back. We saw that, right? God provided the means for people's sins to be washed away, to be atoned. So that even though they are sinful and deserve judgment, they can be God's people. And for us, living in the New Testament times, knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that Jesus Christ and His sacrifice is the ultimate means of atonement, right? To pay for our sins, to avert the judgment of God. 
Former sins will never be counted against the one who turns back to God. God's promise, as long as I live, I will surely give you life. Because it is God himself who provides the means for life. And so God is just to judge, but he takes no pleasure in it. Instead, he desires, he takes pleasure in showing mercy, in giving life. All it would take is the simple step of people turning back to God. Right? Turning to God for mercy and for life, the simplest of steps. Now for Israel in exile, facing a death sentence, this is amazing news. For Israel who had been given chance after chance which they spurned, for God who kept pursuing them, whom they rejected, another chance. Isn't that amazing? It shows the heart of God to be your life giver. As we press on in this chapter, how, how does Israel respond, right? Uh, God's justice and God's mercy is explained. How will the people of God respond? Verse 17. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just. When it's our own way, that is not just. And in verse 20, they say the same thing, right? Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Now, doesn't that break your heart? Doesn't it kind of make you shake your head in frustration? Doesn't make you clench your fist in anger at the way that the people responded to God? Does it even make sense? Right? That they've, they've, they've acknowledged their sin, They've acknowledged the disaster that they brought to their own lives, that their life is in the balance, and yet they would accuse God. They would throw the blame at God and say, you are the one that's unjust, God, right? not me. Seven long years of proclaiming judgment from Ezekiel, and then they finally acknowledge their sin and the brokenness of their lives and their hopeless condition. They cry out, but sadly, it's not a cry of faith. It's certainly just a, simply a cry of anguish, a cry of complaint even, maybe. Rather than take responsibility for their own sinfulness, they put the blame on God. It seems that they simply cannot grasp or they refuse to grasp the simple idea of divine justice, which is fair and just. It seems to make no sense to us, does it? To be so stubborn in sin, even when the destruction of sin is felt. It seems to make no sense to turn against God when God is opening His arms up in love and mercy to receive them back in. It seems so senseless, so crazy. But that's a tragedy of sin, isn't it? Sin senselessly stops you from accepting responsibility, and sin can even make you blame God instead. I think we see this all the time, even in our own lives and in the lives of the people around us. Right? We certainly see it, I think, in human relationships. Uh, we all have relationships where we know sometimes we hurt people, right? It's us who have done the wrong thing. Maybe we've made the wrong assumption about someone or we've, um, we've, um, we've um, had certain expectations, right? And then we, we blame somebody, even though we know at the end of the day it's really my fault. It was my pride or it was my lie or it was my anger right, that blew things up. But then in our pride... We refuse to take responsibility. In fact, we might put the blame on our friend, right, on our loved ones. And we'll, 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 we'll think out ways to find fault in them instead of owning the responsibility for our own actions. We might even start to think that they're worse than what they really are. 
Kids do this to their parents all the time, right? Kids do this to their parents all the time. You know, uh, kids are told, I don't want you using the iPad playing games, right, after a certain time. And then the kids, you find them underneath a blanket, they're playing games on the iPad, right? And you told them many times that if they do that, the iPad will be confiscated. And so you confiscate the iPad, right, and you put it away for a week. You told them this many times. But what do they say? It's not fair. I told you, this is what happened. No, it's not fair. And then they, yeah, you know. It's not just kids who do this. Parents do this too, right? My parents will blow up, right? I'll, I'll, I'll blow up deluxe, right? You, you know, if you were to live maybe five doors down, you could still hear me sometimes. I'll get that angry sometimes. Sinfully angry, right? I'm not supposed to lose my temper, but it's not my fault, right? If you hadn't done that, I wouldn't sinfully blow up at you. Uh, it's not fair that I've got a kid like you, right, in my life. <laughs> now, we don't say that, but we think that, right? Because it's not my fault. We are so great at not taking responsibility for our sin. And we even put the responsibility, the blame on someone else. But the worst of it is that we do it to God. We do it to God. Now, we don't have to think very hard to know that we are sinners, right? We don't have to think very hard about that. Because even by our own standards, by our own moral standards, we fail. Now, if God is really God, His standards are far greater than ours. How much more will we fail God's standards? We don't have to live very long for us to feel the impact of our own sinful choices and behaviors. Many of us walk around knowing that we feel guilt about things that we've done wrong against others and perhaps against God. In our sober moments, we, 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 we will wonder, right? How can we possibly live whole lives? If there really is a God, how does He see me? Can I really stand before Him? Now, maybe you don't believe in God, but if there is a God, do you think you could stand before Him? For those of you who do believe in a God who is holy and righteous, how possibly can we stand before Him? And yet, in life, countless people live life blaming God, finding any and every reason to find fault with God instead of turning to Him. Now, the Christian message is really very simple, isn't it? The Christian message is that we are sinners before God, but God in His love and in His mercy has given us a way of forgiveness. All we need to do is turn to Him and ask turn to Him and receive the gift of life that He freely and simply offers to sinners like you and me. But people won't receive it. They won't take responsibility for their sin. Now we hear, maybe we've said these things ourselves, or maybe we hear other people say it, right? They, they won't accept God's justice. No, judgment is just unfair. Right? It's, it's not, I'm not that bad. <clears throat> Why should God judge and judge me? I'm not that bad. Right, it's God's fault. It's God's fault that this world is messed up. It's God's fault that I sin in the first place. If God is so good, why is there suffering? Why is there brokenness and sin in this world? <clears throat> or people might question God's justice. Or they get really hung up right, on theological issues. But how can a loving God judge in the first place? Never mind that I know that I'm sinful, but how can a loving God actually judge people? Right, predestination, that's so unfair. Salvation by grace, that's unfair too. Right, whatever God does is unfair. The tragedy of sin is that it's senseless. Right, we senselessly deny what's clear 
We refuse to accept responsibility. But I think worst of all is that we senselessly refuse the simple mercy of God right, that he so freely offers to all who just simply turn to him in, in faith uh, and repentance. Remember, God is pro-life. He wants to give us life. He, he pleasures to give us life. Why will we not take it? <clears throat> now, the second tragic picture of sin is seen in the second half right, of this chapter. So after the fall of Jerusalem, from verse 23 to 24, we see uh, another group of people. And this time, they are the group, like I said, uh, in the promised land, which is kind of like a wasteland now. Uh, they've already heard the news. They've, they've perhaps even seen the fall of Jerusalem. Now, these people in this place, having seen right, the judgment of God fall, having experienced it, what do they say? Have a look at verse 23 and 24. They basically say, you know what? We'll be fine. Right? We'll be okay. The land, the promised land of God, will always be ours to possess. Now, have a look at verse 23 and 24. Their logic is this, right? Abraham, the forefather whom God had initially promised the promised land to, he was one, and he got the land. We are many, so we will definitely possess the land. Now, what kind of strange logic is this? Uh, I don't know, right? Maybe that meant that, you know, if, if God gave it to the one guy, he certainly would give it to the many. Or if the one guy had the power to hold on to the land, we who are many can definitely hold on to the land. Who knows what kind of senseless thinking that they were thinking of, but it made no sense whatsoever. Now, the Lord God had to remind them, right, as if he needed more reminding, right, through the prophet Ezekiel, exactly why is it that the land is already such a waste, he tells them it's your idolatry and your violence, your false alliances and all manner of abominations that you have done, right? Basically, it's a, it's a summary of chapters uh, 3 right, to 32. It's basically summed up in verses 25 to 29. It is you who have broken the covenant. You have been sinful and wicked towards me, God, and your people with all of your violence and immorality. And so God says, well, what makes you think you will possess the land? What well, makes you think that just because you survive and there's a few of you, that you'll keep going and, and even live long and prosper uh, in the land? It makes no sense for them to think this way. And just so they're clear, God proclaims to them in verse 27 to 29 that not only will they not possess the, li- the land, it will come eventually to a complete destruction. By paraphrasing these two verses, basically God vows, doesn't he? As surely as I live, that, in that phrase again, isn't it? As surely as I live, right, I vow that all who are in the land, you, the remnant, the animals, every stronghold, every mountain, every cave, every hiding place, none of it, none of you will stand. It will all come to an end. Devoured, destroyed, desolate. Now, in this second picture of sin, we see that sin causes people to deny reality. Right, before, we see people denying responsibility, but here I think we're denying reality. Right, to see that the judgment of God has already fallen, the city has fallen, to see and experience life in the devastated wasteland that was once the promised land, flowing with milk and honey and, and every good thing, and then to say, you know, we'll be right, mate. Right? That, that real Aussie phrase, you know, I will be right. Everything's sweet, bro. 
Uh, dude, to, to say something like this in this kind of context, it's not just wrong. It's perverse, isn't it? It's a total lack of any spiritual sensitivity. It's kind of next-level spiritual crazy, almost. How could the remnant of Israel who have experienced and seen so much of God's judgment still think that all will be fine and dandy? But once again, isn't this something that we see all the time, even in our own lives and the lives of the people around us? We live in a world where the reality of God's judgment is felt every day. For since the beginning of creation at the fall, where God has judging sin, we've been experiencing life in a sin-broken world. Right? We, we experience death and decay in, in just about everything that we do and we have and we touch. Nothing lasts. Every other day, there's a natural disaster right, occurring somewhere in our broken world. We're experiencing diseases and, 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 and plagues and pestilence of many kinds. Like now more than ever with COVID, right? for many decades perhaps, we lived with the blissful uh, reality that you know, all that plague stuff, all that pestilence stuff in the Old Testament, that was old school, right? That was third world. And we're living a plague now. And there's wars and there's violence, there's cruelty and greed across every level of society. Sinful humanity in every relationship and every type of relationship is hell-bent on hating and hurting and harming and harassing. Right? We hurt others, we hurt ourselves, and we certainly hurt God. And yet so many in our world still insist that, you know what, in essence, by nature, we're good. Right? That's, that's the, uh, the humanism, isn't it? That we are by nature good people, we're born good. And in fact, there is promise, there is hope for a bright future. The world is our oyster. The future is bright. But we live in a world which is so broken. But sin blinds us all to the reality of destruction that our sin has brought. Sin blinds us to the judgment that God is, in a way, mercifully bringing upon the world to show us that we need help, that we need repenting. Now, as I said at the beginning, this chapter caps off the judgment half of the book. So let me just kind of wrap up a few things uh, from this chapter as it caps off this section of the book. Now, right at the center of this book, oh, sorry, of this chapter is the fall of Jerusalem. And I think the first thing I want to talk about is, um, uh, as we've kind of ended this section of, of uh, chapter 33, is to see that losing God really is the most tragic thing that... Israel and that anyone can ever experience. Hundreds of years of prophecy and hundreds of years of uh, warning has led up to the very moment at the center of this chapter. If you remember back to chapter 8 to 11, if you were around, uh, we saw Ezekiel being spiritually transported, right, with a vision of what's happening in the temple and in Jerusalem. In chapter 8 to 11, we saw God leaving the temple and leaving the city. We saw God uh, in his dwelling place in the Holy of Holies, at the center of the temple, in the center of the city, he moves out from the Holy of Holies to the, the threshold of the temple. And then he moves out to the east gate of the temple. And then he moves out of the city, and then he lingers on the east mountain outside of Jerusalem. This slow and, and long and lingering departure of God. As the Lord forsakes his people, who does so with a heavy heart, he breaks to have to do so. Because we're told in chapter 33, he takes no pleasure in the death 
of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in leaving his people, but leave his people he must because they are unrepentant, abominable sinners who will not turn back to him. And so Jerusalem is now fallen. Now to to us sitting here 2,600 years later, Perhaps this is just a historical fact that Jerusalem, the city of the uh, capital of Israel, once was destroyed by Babylon. And the question might be, so what, right? So what for us today? Well, I think the biggest so what from this is to see that the city of God represents something. Right? The, the temple, right, the center of the city represents something, something profound and something deeply good. It represents God's presence with his people. To have the city of God, to be the city of God, is to be the people of God. It is to belong to God. It is to have God. It is to be blessed by God, known by God, led by God, loved by God, treasured by God, treasured by the one who made you, the one who had led them for hundreds of years, the one who saved them, the one who secures them now and forever, the one who gives them meaning and purpose and every blessing that God created for us to have. It is to be connected to the very center of our existence. The city of God being destroyed means it is no longer the case. It means that they're no longer God's people. It means that they are orphaned, abandoned, hopeless, vulnerable, a life now without meaning or purpose, a life where the only thing to look forward to now is darkness and death. Far above anything and everything else, the greatest tragedy is to not have God or to lose Him, having once been connected to Him. Right? That is the great tragedy of the first half of this book, to see God leave His people. Now, I'm not sure if you've experienced that. Maybe you've lived your whole life so far not being connected to God, and maybe you do feel something missing. It is something to explore more deeply, my friend. If you have never known God, and you feel that there's something missing, something empty, it's because God has placed it there, right, graciously to remind you that you need God in your life, and that He so simply offers for you to come back to Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus, in the Christian message, the good news of the gospel. For others of us who have known God but are drifting, I've spoken to many of you over the years about this, and that feeling of disconnecting from God, not walking closely with our Lord Jesus, it feels so terrible and and lonely and and disastrous, doesn't it? It's a reminder that we, we need to be connected to our Creator, to our Savior. And sin and unrepentant sinfulness, it separates us from God. And God is saying, come back, right? Come back. This chapter helps us to see that sin is senseless as well, right? It's senseless. It senselessly makes us not take responsibility for the sins that we know that we commit against God and other people. Sin also blinds us to the reality of God's judgment. And we experience God's judgment, the brokenness of sin all the time. And so this chapter leaves us asking, will, will we see how senseless sin is and just stop? And, 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 and see and turn back to God. We need to see also from this chapter that the Lord takes no pleasure in judgment. 
I'm not sure what our view of God is or your view of God is. Maybe you see God as being some harsh judge just dying to throw lightning bolts to smite us. Maybe even as a believer, you've been thinking that, right? You're always living in fear of what God thinks of you, especially when you sin. Be reminded today that God takes no pleasure in judging. In fact, He desires to show mercy to anyone who would turn back to Him. So whether it's the first time or whether it's the millionth time, just keep turning back to God because He lovingly will forgive and show mercy. Finally, this chapter, like I say, caps off the first 33 chapters of this book. And it's preparing us to receive the message of hope that will dominate the rest of this book. And the question that is asked of the reader at this point is, will you be ready to respond and receive this message of hope? You see, Ezekiel is also, I think, our watchman. Right? He was Israel's watchman. I think he's ours as well. His job is to warn us to get ready right, for the coming judgment. For Israel, the judgment arrived in Ezekiel 33, in AD 580, uh, BC 585. For us, the final judgment day is to come. How will we respond to God's word? Now, the final verses of this passage shows us what not to do. So let me just read out the final verses, just to end off this section for us, okay? Verse 30, chapter 33, verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and the doors of the houses, they say to one another, each to his brother, so he's talking to Ezekiel now, talking about the Israelites, right? They will say to you, come, hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their own gain. And behold, you are, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Can you hear what the people of God are like even after judgment has fallen? The words of the prophet are just like a pop song, isn't it? Just frivolous entertainment. They've heard the words of the prophet. They even say, come, come, let's hear the word of the Lord. But it goes in one ear and out the other. Now, many of you have heard many sermons, I'm sure. Maybe even some really great ones. Uh, you've heard Steve, and he's been so entertaining. He loves t- telling stories. His jokes are great. Ben, let's not worry about Ben. <laughs> you know, maybe you've gone on YouTube or Spotify. You've heard your Tim Keller, you know, your, your John Piper, your, your Francis Chan, or whoever it is, right, that you've heard. You've, you've, you've heard uh, plenty of great teaching in your life. And certainly you've heard today's message. How have you heard? Have you just been entertained for the moment? Maybe I've given you a couple of laughs. Maybe a few things to think about. And maybe that's what it's like every time you come to church. Every time you listen to a podcast. But what happens when you walk out through that door, through the exit-only gate right there? Have you already forgotten? anything and everything that God has said through His Word. The warning at the end here is, do not be hearers of the Word only, but make sure that you are a doer also. And the doing is to receive it by faith and to respond in repentance. Let us make sure 
that we have not wasted our time listening to a fluffy pop song today, but that we have heard the Word of God, that it takes root in our lives and it makes a change, a transformation in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you speak to us through your word, even in hard words like the words of judgment that we've been reading through these many weeks in the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel. Help us to know you, our Lord God. Help us to know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to know you in judgment. Help us to see the, the tragedy of sin, how our sin causes us so senselessly to, to, to deny the responsibility for our actions how sin blinds us to the spiritual realities of your judgment, how it stops us from turning to you, the simple act of faith, the simple act of repentance, the simple act of asking you to show mercy to us, which you so desire, which you so, uh, um, with great pleasure, want to pour on us. So today, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the millionth time, help us to respond to you in faith and repentance. Help us to, to know and feel the full weight of the tragedy of not knowing you, not being connected to you, not knowing your presence in our lives. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.